don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 50, and my hands have never been cleaner. Today we're talking about uh, Phenomenon from 1996, directed by John Turtletaub, starring uh, the Volt Man himself, John Travolta, uh, and Kira Sedgwick, um, almost said Forrest Whitaker, that is not who that is, um, or is it? Or, yeah, yeah, Forrest Whitaker, Forrest. sorry. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, Robert Duvall, so on and so forth. Um, a Jeffrey DeMond. <laughs> a uh, movie that I had never, or I'd seen like a long time ago when I was a kid, and I didn't really expect a whole lot from it, but I actually really like this movie. I freaking loved it. I was very surprised. Um, I remember liking it as a kid. And, uh, but I, you, we've sort of talked about this before. You, when you're a kid and you like something, you don't really know why, but you kind of suspect maybe there's more going on than you can discern at that time and maybe this is one of those because uh like i really enjoyed it the worst part of this movie is john travolta it's really weird <laughs> that he's in this movie yeah uh, he just uh, kind of sticks out like a sore thumb but the the script is is good enough to where you just kind of uh you can forgive it that and and you still get lost in the story at least i did yeah, and you can also, as we've learned with some earlier films, you can really like something with your when you're a kid, and then it turns out you're just wrong. Kingpin. Yes. Uh, so you know there there are times when that happens, but you know I actually I don't mind Travolta in this. I actually I made a note. What did I write down? I said Travolta plays unpretentious everyman fairly well. Like he's he's charming enough, right? He's just yeah, sort of like yeah. a, a nice dude. It, it gets better. But and a lot of that uh, again is the script where the it's kind of a smart kind of a smart uh, uh, concept where you're sort of tricked into thinking that this is kind of a a sci-fi sort of thing, mm-hmm. and it's actually this really sad story, uh, and so for the first half of the movie, Travolta's kind of goofy and and then it and then it's you know not goofy at all it's like oh man dying of a tumor (laughs) Uh, so spoiler alert but but that abrupt shift in tone is a a difficult thing to pull off but it but it it does it pretty well yeah and And i can see where some people might feel kind of ripped off yeah Uh, but those people are I don't like those people. Uh, this the ending of this movie reminded me the ending it reminded me of the ending of another movie we've watched. Uh, do you have any guesses? Um, uh, like the very end, or just like, just the, like the, the abrupt shift? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I don't have a guess. Ad Astra. Okay. You want me to yeah, see where, I, no, I, I think I see where you're going. Uh, we're searching for answers out there. The answers are actually here, sort of intrinsic, local. Yeah, it's like we're, uh, we're alone, but that's okay, right? And there's even those people when he's at the the scene when he's at the county fair or whatever it is, and he's at his table, and people are asking him questions. The number one thing he keeps being asked is. Tell us about the Indians. Or the Indians. What? Tell us about the aliens. Tell us about the uh, the UFO. Um, let us know, like, what's really out there. What's the truth? Like, tell us these things that we, you know, have no kind of cannot have any sort of knowledge of. Uh, and he's like, well, no. Let me tell you about what's here on Earth. Let me explain the aspen trees that are the world's biggest organism. And people don't give a shit about the trees. They want to know about the aliens and, and, and kill my so son frust- and that sort of stuff. What's so frustrating about that scene is that he is trying to answer their questions, and they are upset because they cannot even comprehend that what he is saying is the answer to their question because their minds are trapped in this sort of realm of spectacle. You know, mm-hmm. and and so he is trying in some way to answer their question. And 
and they, they can't even they're so they're so closed off from the type of thing he's talking about that they can't even recognize that he's trying to answer their question. They think he's dodging the question, but he's not. Yeah, they're like, tell us about, you know, your magic. And he's like, well, no, the magic is in is of the world and in the world. And you, too, can have the magic if you, you know, focus right. or, or sort of let me tell my story about these trees. And they're like, no, your magic. It's, it's different. And it's so it's so uh, cathartic when Robert Duvall's character, the doctor, freaks out on the the guys in the bar who are just like clearly scared to admit that, you know, something is. Um, strange is happening. And when he just screams at him, you know, it's like, yeah. why do you got to put him down? He was selling nothing. He wanted nothing. You just got to, uh, you know, put him down. So you, you can convince yourself the earth is flat. Yeah. Uh, and that's what yeah, that's those, a satisfying scene. Yeah. Just that whole idea that, that he's, he says at one point, like that light that I saw was a mistake and he's implying like I was the wrong person. Uh, and you know, that's one of the, pretty standard moves that the the plot is doing is like no he was the exact right person right he's the kind of guy that would just you know create all this stuff and then give it back for free not want anything from it just out of natural curiosity he wants to you know create the most you know efficient way of storing solar energy or like improve the bar owner's parking lot that kind of stuff yeah and there's there's a parallel i think you see with the notion of like outer space and aliens uh, with the sort of larger um, maybe national or global culture um, as the movie sort of saying it's similarly abstract as like this concept of outer space where Nate Forrest Whitaker's character, you know, he's always talking about uh, Diana Ross and he's just like sending out his signals on his, on his radio and and of course nothing comes of it he's just gonna keep talking about it and and the solution to his love problems you know is a real woman a local woman who you know needs a job and and it's just it's a very practical situation is the actual solution to his to his problems uh it's similar to the way george at first is upset that you know, he says this was, was this was a mistake because it was supposed to happen to someone uh, at a university, a professor, a scientist, um, and you see uh, that the mo- the movie kind of takes this genius trope that we maybe we've talked about the sort of goodwill hunting thing, and but refreshingly kind of conceives of genius as like local ecological efficiency. Um, and so like, like you said, it happened to the perfect person because this, uh, this phenomenon cannot be, or will not be co-opted by some sort of larger grid. Uh, and, and that ends up being sort of the, the main drama is will, George allow himself to be operated on to benefit some abstract humanity or will he not and 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 sort of live out the rest of his days in his local community of course he chooses the latter um and that's I was just not expecting in rewatching this to find the uh philosophy so so intentionally there that sort of local ecological philosophy just like explicit you know like that's the point of this movie uh, and that's just not what i was expecting in a major you know hollywood john travolta thing and uh i was very pleasantly surprised yeah and i kind of noticed that this movie's not because of the the turn and the plot and all this other stuff this movie's not really the kind of lightweight kind of romantic weird little romp that you might think it is at first it, it has a lot of big messages uh like you're talking about that it's trying to get across um and one thing that i notice is, is in a lot of 90s movies a lot of movies in general the uh government or the you know in the government in the guise of the military or military intelligence or something like that 
is a pretty standard kind of boogeyman that you can go to if you think about like E.T. or, you know, a lot of movies like that. And in in this, that's that's true. But also there's this other thing that's more kind of harmful to to George's existence. And it's academics and academia and sort of medicine. Um, I mean, the guy that's trying to that has the judge sort of order George to have brain surgery, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah. You know, it was this doctor who's like sells it as I want to preserve. I want to like learn about your brain so we can you can be a teacher for future gen- generations, um, even though there's also this kind of you get this feeling it's like sort of glory chasing sort of stuff. Um so yeah, the movie doesn't really treat academics very well. It presents them as being pretty short-sighted, sort of overly practically minded, overly specialized. You have the geologist from Berkeley and George is like, well, I need to talk to everybody else at Berkeley. Look at my plants. Look at how efficiently I'm growing these things. My fertilizer. He says, I invented a fuel that I think cars can run on made from methane. And the guy's like, I only want to know about the earthquake. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I, I only care about the earthquake. Yeah. And I think that is meant to comment on the specialization in academia. Yeah. And so it, it's George says something that kind of sums up his whole attitude and the and kind of the, the film's sort of whole attitude toward this kind of thinking when he's with the kids gathering the flowers. And he's like, you know, recently I've been able to name any flower I see the scientific sort of Linnaeus uh, designation for these flowers. And then he says, well, it doesn't make them any prettier. And and it's kind of this idea that that, that sort of deep sort of academic knowledge isn't really necessary to have this kind of aesthetic experience or this sort of truth about these things. Um, it's it's similar to the point he's making in the conversation with the, you know, the brain surgeon guy, basically he's saying my brain is not me. Um, you know, and, and the movie makes a kind of old, old distinction between brain and mind that a lot of people kind of uh, uh, would contest or rebuke that distinction. But I, I certainly don't. I think I think uh, I think they're they're different things in intrinsic to one another, but different things. And yeah, there's there is a difference between some like a piece of information and the kind of emotional truth that a piece of information can, you know, can have in the world. There's, there's a difference between the scientific name of a flower and like how a field of flowers makes you feel. Yeah. And, and the movie does a good job of, of presenting that, I think in a, in a package that's like understandable and, and, a couple of times that and then the scene with the apple it's kind of travolta travolta's character george explaining these big concepts in a way that's relatable to children so you know being the kind of teacher that they talk about him wanting him to be and also you know explaining it to the audience in a pretty pretty basic kind of way yeah it's also i think uh in a way trying to reclaim the symbol of taking a bite of an apple, you know, yeah. uh, sort of the, Edenic the go, thing. the go to, yeah. Uh, symbol for sin. And, and here's this, you know, here's this towards the end of this movie. It's like a major metaphor and the kids take a bite of the apple and it's this symbol of them accepting kind of the natural cycles of life and death. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's well written. It's a it's a nicely put together film. Yeah, except I will say like some of the music choices are very nineties. Yeah, the Cheryl Cheryl Crow could, song could be worse. You know, Cheryl Crow. You had Jewel singing "Have a Little Faith in Me," uh, and uh, Eric Clapton. Who changed the world? Eric Clapton song stuck in my head. I had that. My, well, my mom had that album. I think it's called Pilgrim unless I'm mistaken. Um, she used to play it in the car a lot. So I've heard that song like a million times. Yeah. Uh, there's a few little parts that are a little bit cringeworthy when George is reading and the pages start to magically follow his fingers and he runs outside and says, 
is somebody trying to tell me something? And, and I get why that part exists. It's to further sort of trick the audience into thinking, okay, we're supposed to be thinking a little bit sci-fi here to make the reveal that it's a tumor more dramatic, but it's just uh, not a not a great scene, not very believable. Um, and there's just a few little moments like that that are not great. Yeah. And I don't know, but there are other moments that I think are, are really great. There are a couple of times when George has kind of a little, you know, a snarky sort of little line when something happens. So like when he shows his telekinesis to, uh, the, the doctor to Robert Duvall, uh, he spins the, the pen around and he goes, is that okay? (laughs) (laughs) And then like later on, there's a, Oh crap. Let me see. I wrote it down. There's another one. That's like basically the same joke, but like with a different punchline. Um, come on. I know I wrote it down. Uh, well there was that one and then there's another one later on, but the little sort of comedic moments. And that's what makes it makes George kind of charming enough. I really liked, for some reason, I really liked his reaction when, you know, he predicts the earthquake and he, he drives home and then his girlfriend and her kids have sort of followed him there and she pulls up and he just sort of like holds his hands up like, what the fuck, you know, uh, it's, it seemed a very believable reaction. Like how the hell did I just do that? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of, um, they ask him like, you learn Portuguese, you learn the Portuguese language in 20 minutes. And he goes, not all of it. Not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a, another thing I've, uh, uh, that I wanted to point out that I really like about the movie is the, um, uh, again, this is 1996 and it seems the movie seems to emphatically welcome immigrants to this local community. It, it seems to naturalize their their presence there and just to suggest that these are members of the community and it is normal and right and and good to uh to learn their language and to welcome them and that is a a good thing to see in a major hollywood production yeah you have was it tito that works at the garage yeah. Who's trying yeah. to trying to help George learn Spanish and then he learns the Portuguese for the the new family in town. So yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. a little you know and it's not a big deal when they show up. I mean, it's only a big deal because the guy the old guy doesn't speak Portuguese and they need to find out what he's saying, but other than that it's not they're not like these these damn Portuguese coming in taking our jobs. Right, right. There's 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 none of that. And you know, the the guy I guess it's Tito who works with George. It's just like they've worked together forever. They're just friends. Their friendship is not like his his place in the film, that character's place in the film is not about him being an immigrant or, you know, from somewhere else. Um and and neither is the the Portuguese family beyond oh, he doesn't speak English and so that's part of the drama of this little scenario. But it's not about immigration in any way. It's uh, in any negative way. Uh, it's just like these are members of the community, um, which is, like I said, just nice to see in, in a major Hollywood film, naturalizing and normalizing that. Um, I watched this movie on an old VHS copy that I had. And interestingly, there is a commercial before the movie starts with John Travolta uh, talking about Arbor Day. Hmm. It's a terrible commercial. Uh, John Travolta seems like a kind of creepy dude. (laughs) But uh, um, yeah, that should have been my first clue when I was younger that this was a kind of ecologically minded movie. I don't know how I missed that when I was younger, but I, I think I did. I mean, there's a lot of, if you're talking like outside of movie world, there's a lot of uh, like allegations against Travolta and like weird shit. I mean, to be that deep into Scientology, 
Yeah. There, there's got to yeah, be yeah. something going on. Oh man, his Wikipedia picture is weird. Anyway, um, yeah, a lot of like sexual assault allegations, um, things like that. So you know, not I'm sure in real life he's he's maybe not, you know, the best person. Yeah, um, I, I was thinking. Um, Jensen and I were trying to think of actors in the '90s who would have made more sense, and I, I uh, to play George Malley. And I have one that I feel pretty strongly about would have been a, a good choice, except of, uh, uh, on the same level of like stardom or general level of stardom to where. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to pick like Daniel Day Lewis or something. That, <laughs> uh, uh, That'd be good. But uh, Jeff Bridges, I feel like, is the, oh. the the actor I would have picked to play this. John Travolta feels to me, he just feels like somebody who's in Pulp Fiction. You know, is, this is kind Jeff, of meta. How old is Jeff Bridges? Um, well, he's he's uh, well. I mean, he's not. He's a little bit older than Travolta, but not so old that it would have been weird or anything. What about like Kevin Klein? That makes sense too. Uh, Even Jensen said Mel Gibson, which I think in in his like signs, you know, he, at first it seems weird to think of Mel Gibson in a cornfield, but it's like, Oh, he was in signs (laughs) and that works. In science, he's mostly in cornfields. Right. Uh, Uh, That'd be good. Travolta just feels weird. I mean, in, in real life and as, the lead in this movie. Yeah, like Woody but, Harrelson. Like, like you said, cool. the movie is strong enough to where you forget about him. Yeah. That's true. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. Uh, did you know that the guy that did the score, Thomas Newman, a uh, pretty well-known uh, film composer, he's been nominated for just a boatload of Oscars. Um, mm-hmm. Just looking at other movies he's done, Shawshank, The Green Mile, Finding Nemo, Wally. Skyfall, Spectre, Road to Perdition, American Beauty. Wow. It does a lot of Sam Mendes stuff, obviously. Uh, it's interesting you said American Beauty because I thought about the, that watching phenomenon where the, the scenes where they just show kind of close-ups on trees uh, swaying in the breeze. The music and the feeling is very similar to the to the bag in American Beauty. Yeah. And uh, this anyway. this movie is like two hours and two minutes or something like that. Um, and the reason it's so long, I figured out, I think because I was, I was watching it, but I was also trying to like get through it, you know, expediently. So I, when there there was a scene that I knew was going to drag on, I'd be like, okay, let me skip 30 seconds, 30 seconds. And there were quite a few times where I I found myself skipping like two minutes where it was just, maybe the scene doesn't need to be that long or like the opening credits were really slow. Uh, and that, you know, that's not important in any kind of way, but it just shows like, I feel like movies today don't do that, or maybe they can't get away with that like they could in the nineties. The the opening sequence of just like kind of pastoral uh, farm shots is very pretty to look at. Um, like I said, I was watching a, a VHS tape, but I was watching on on a good TV, and it it was just a, a very pleasant, like aesthetically pleasant movie experience, and. Uh, there, in terms of scene length, there was one where I noticed the the sequence where George happens upon the kids in the field, and then they, you know, uh, the daughter helps him with the flower arrangement, and then I think Cheryl Crow is playing at this point, and they're going back up to the house. That sequence takes like the entirety of the Cheryl Crow song. Yeah. Uh, it's it's too long, but uh, I yeah I don't know I don't know if there's like a conscious effort to really? trim the fat or or if we're just lazier now. We can talk about my my least favorite scene in the whole film, and it's when Kira Sedgwick like shaves him and like cuts his hair and shit. That's that's another one that's way too long. It's super long, and that song that's playing. Uh, like it's, it's just not, I didn't care for that. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was weird. And like, I get how the point. Can we have, how can we have a sex scene in a PG movie? <laughs> you know, which later on, uh, they just have like the PG sex scene. Yeah. When he brings I, back his joke of like, no, nah, just hoping to. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, in that scene, I thought she was going to pull out some scissors and just really cut his hair again. <laughs> She's uh, like, I know what you want. Snip, snip. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was not great. That that was the only scene in the movie where I was like, this is actively bad. But everything else was fine. It's the best uh, scissoring scene I've seen Kiris Pedrick in. It's, I mean, yeah, best one I've seen since blue is the warmest color. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it just I was kind of you know blown away, maybe a bit too far, but I was you know very pleasantly surprised. It does. I mean, we have things like this. Uh, myth of the unused brain thing and like he's so smart because this tumor has activated parts of his brain that other people can't use i've heard explanations of that that's it's not that you only use 10 percent of your brain or whatever it's like you only use that percentage for any given 90. task or something yeah well i've heard it explained as like 90 percent of your brain is necessary to feed the 10 percent that you use so in a sense you are using 100 percent of your brain yeah like part of it it's like your heart's beating and you're breathing without having to think about it that, that kind of right. thing right um yeah so uh, and, but the movie you can see tries to insist that you not focus on that you know he when he's explaining it to the doctor he's sort of saying uh you know, uh, he's telling him that this is just one way to get to the place where he's gotten and that he thinks everyone can get there. So it's almost him like saying, don't focus on this, focus on what I have learned. And, you know, these, these sort of insights that I have been able to grasp, that is what's important, not how it happened. Yeah, and that that's an, another scene that that kind of backs up um, th- this idea of of academics being jerk offs because the the doctor's like you're not a scholar, and that for some reason like discounts his entire you know this these reams of of pages he's written that are going to change the world, but he's not a scholar, therefore it's kind of discounted. Um, and I think the tumor is kind of a good enough analogy where he's saying it's. It's not something that came from outer space. It's something that, you know, grew within me that is part of me that made me, you know, the phenomenon. It's not something that you need to study. It's like it's a potentiality sort of within myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he calls himself the possibility. Yeah, I'm the possibility of, of what what everyone could be. And that's kind of his. And then his deal with the the apple and with the kids and all that stuff is sort of the knowledge I'm leaving behind and the effect I've had on these people is that's the phenomenon. It's not the fact that I can move sunglasses with my hand, you know, from across the room or whatever. Um, And it's, it's really nice to see, like I was saying earlier, see a movie that conceives of genius as this sort of ecological awareness. Usually, you know, you look at something like Goodwill hunting, which came out the year after, you know, it conceives of genius as this way to, you know, he, he, he knows really complicated math problems. Yeah, he do the uh, math real good. Yeah, he but. does math real good. And apparently he's a history buff. Yeah, he reads, all, I uh, mean, when you think about it, it's the same kind of word. genius, right? It's like he just read a lot of books. Right, right. Um, so it's it's interesting to see how movies use genius. Um, think, uh, I guess it was 1995. The movie Matilda came out, which a, a you know, similar very, thing, very different film, but but still, it's about this character with kind of supernatural powers and who reads, you know, nonstop. Uh, it's do we have this in in twenty first century culture where major Hollywood productions are telling us that the way to be a genius is to read? a lot of books and the way to work yourself out of, uh, bad circumstances, uh, or, you know, just ordinary circumstances is to read a lot of books because the only like character I can think of recently, who's like a reader is like the, uh, the psycho killer guy on that Netflix show. You, <laughs> I, I, I'm aware of that show, but I know nothing about it. It's not very good. Uh, but it, I, I'm just trying to think of like a, another character 
who's a diehard reader. Because like I said, in the 90s, you have Will Hunting, George Malley and Phenomenon, Matilda. All these movies are about the, the heroes are voracious readers. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there's more examples that I can't think of, but I can't really think of recent stories like that. It's like now it's like it well, and not just now for a long time. If you read a lot, it's because you're either uh, a child. Children are allowed to read a lot or you're a great big nerd or you're in prison. So like I, I just finished uh, a couple of days ago, the night of that you recommended. and I've been meaning oh. to watch for a long time anyway. Um, and that's a big thing or not a big thing, but it's, it's a, you know, kind of a minor thing. And in that show that Michael K. Williams's character, uh, Freddie in the prison, he reads and he has his high school diploma and he's very proud of it. And he, you know, he prides himself as being kind of the smartest dude in the prison until Nas shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's it, like into, into Jack London, right? Yeah. The call of the wild is his favorite book. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. And, and so, yeah, if you read a lot, it's because it's some kind of special circumstance. And now, given you know social distancing and quarantining and stuff like that uh reading i think is making a comeback because people think you can only do it when you have nothing else to do or like you don't have any other options yeah it's the last last option if you've got absolutely nothing to do that's when you read like i i don't read nearly as much as i would like to or that i feel like i should but i still feel like i read exponentially more than than the average person does yeah, I, uh, I've been, I didn't really read a ton when I was a kid. I, I'm not a lifetime reader, but when I was like 16, I started reading like, I think I read The Catcher in the Rye and like Chuck Palahniuk and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, the stuff that you're supposed to read when you're a depressed teenager. But, uh, I guess right when I finished college, really, I started, I was probably 22 when I really started reading and I haven't stopped for like 13, well, I don't know, 10 or 11 years. Uh, And I'm always trying to arrange my life to where I have time (laughs) to read. Uh, And I just, I think I said this the other day to Jensi, I was like, I don't understand what people do. Uh, if, if not read, maybe, maybe people with kids, I can understand that they're occupied all the time, but like I watch a fair amount of TV too. It's not like I'm, you know, Oh fuck Netflix. I I only want to read. Like I, I like watching TV shows and movies. we have a podcast about movies. So, right. I, I watch a mo- at least one movie every week, you know, usually more. Um, uh, so I just don't understand what are people doing? And, you know, there, there are different kinds. This is something that, you know, my, my English 101 teacher brain thinking of like, there are different ways of reading. So people text a lot and they are on social media and those are, you know, forms of, of reading or they can be. Um, but to me, that's like, it, if you're some middle-aged person who spends all day reading Facebook and arguing on Facebook, to me, that's like, spending all day reading, you know, English 101 essays. It's that, it's that kind of discourse. Yeah. Run, running your eyes over words and, and reading a good book are, are very different things. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's, I'm not talking, I'm not making a comment on like the, the level of the writing. I'm saying the type of writing that it is. Uh, yeah. That kind yeah. Of, and, and even like, I remember I used to work at books a million several years ago and thanks a million. Uh, thanks a million for shopping at books a million um sort of middle-aged women would often come in and they'd buy six or seven like romance books at a time and you know a lot of teenagers too will get into some sort of teen you know uh series like divergent or the hunger games or you know whatever it is and the I mean, there's nothing wrong intrinsically with those things. But if that's all you're reading, you might as well on some, on some level just be watching TV. <laughs> um, People get stuck in those routines, Harry Potter, and they yeah. just keep reading the same things over and over. Or, you know, they read the, the famous sort of stereotype is like, 
oh, you read Of Mice and Men in high school. And it's the best right. book you've ever read because you never bothered to read another book. That's that, that's how you can tell whether or not people are readers is when you ask them their favorite book and it's of mice and men or Fahrenheit 451. A separate or, piece. A separate piece. <laughs> a separate piece fucking rules. Yeah, I mean, so those, I'm not saying these are bad books. It's just if you read widely enough, you'll find something you like more, I would wait. Right, right, right. Like I remember when I was in high school, I read um, – you know, and this is not a not an unusual story, but I read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and still, if somebody like really presses me on what my favorite book is, I just tell them that because you know it's that that first book that you read and you're like, oh, books can be really weird and funny and deep and like emotionally affecting and that sort of thing. Um, and then you're like, oh, I need to read more stuff like this, and that you know, led me yeah. to reading a bunch of other Vonnegut and a bunch of other stuff, and so it, you know the getting those getting those sort of uh cracks in the door that you can then like open it a little bit more and then eventually go through it and it, those are important so you know if you're a young kid a young person or you have a young younger child or whatever and they're into reading divergent or whatever it is that's great it's just try to push them to not stop there yeah yeah and and i think one one sort of real, you know, kind of message of the mo- of phenomenon is uh, kind of feed your curiosity. You know, there's that kind of weird scene where the one of the townies is kind of incredulous about how many books George says he's two reading. Two or three a day or and whatever. he's like, you know, about what? And uh, he's, you know, all the things I wanted to learn about that I never did. Um and he asked him, like, you ever have anything you just want to know about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so on a, you know, you could say, what's the message of this film? It, it seems to say, feed your curiosity and use your knowledge that you gain to improve your community and your, uh, especially in terms of, like, ecology. Uh, improve the the agricultural system around you. Um, there's a, a a really nice sense of community in the movie phenomenon. Yeah, uh, you, mostly kind of embodied by the bar, mm-hmm. um, and I really like the way alcohol is kind of portrayed in this movie, where it's uh, kind of this positive bonding thing you don't see any like super like town drunks or anything like that and it doesn't demonize alcohol but it also doesn't glorify it uh it's just like it is good to stop by and have a beer at the at the local uh bar with people you know but but within a sort of uh, parameters where it's you know no one's like ruining their lives anyway there's just a, a very nice feeling of community that you don't see uh super often in movies yeah especially kind of emphasized at the the very end when it's george's birthday and everyone's gathering at the bar to like celebrate him and his life and all that um and you know you got the kids in there you got the 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 son playing chess with the doctor and like the whole town's there and everybody's having a good time and Forrest Whitaker brings the bushels of corn to give to the bartender and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like a, just a nice feeling that you get at the end of the film of like, he's dead and that's sad, but you know, look at, you know, all the good that he did while he was around and people remembering him. It's just a, it's, it, it is a nice kind of like small town thing that you don't really have, uh, or I, you know, I didn't really have as much, uh, now depending on where you live, um, everyone's so separate and, you know, you, you never speak to your neighbor and, you know, unless you live in a really small town, then you don't really see the same people all the time. Yeah. Um, so it, it, you know, not, not to get too far down the, like nostalgia, make America great again, kind of, kind of rabbit hole. Um, but it, it is kind of, it, I think most people would agree. It's just kind of like a nice thing to have like regulars and you show up at the bar and you hang out and everyone's right. having a good time. Here's a, a kind of weird comparison I wanted to make 
but I think logical. Um, so when George finds out that he has a tumor from the doctor played by Robert Duvall and Kira Sedgwick is there and Forrest Whitaker, Nate is there and it's this big emotional moment and Nate seems to be a little bit choked up and he asks George, is there anything I can do? And George has just learned he has a tumor. He's going to die soon. And so it's sort of the, it's a big emotional moment in the film. And George sort of jokingly says, uh, plant, you know, ne next, next time you plant, uh, the corn, do it in this particular field and use this new fertilizer. And so the movie uses this, this big emotional thing, the emotional scene to emphasize the importance of this kind of, uh, uh, efficient, uh, agriculture. And it reminds me, do you know what I'm going to say? No, no. It reminds me of interstellar in the opposite uh, way. Okay. When he, when he sees, when Cooper comes back and sees Murph and she's like a hundred years old. And the first thing he says, he hasn't seen a daughter, his daughter in, you know, however many decades he says, you told them I like farming. <laughs> and so it, it's sort of the opposite way. The movie uses this emotional high point to kind of scorn to scorn corn instead of, uh, instead of celebrate it. <laughs> scorn corn. Yeah. And I, it is a good, it is interesting how the two takes from the two films are completely opposed to one another where George uses his newfound genius to farm better to improve farming methods and make things more efficient and basically sustainable. Yeah. Basically like he's just like the greenest dude alive. Um, and he has the, the ability to, to make these things a reality. He makes the car that gets like 90 miles to the gallon on pig shit or whatever it is. Um, you know, versus interstellar, which is, you know, we got to get out there in the stars and we got to find it. We got to go. Right. Um, so I, I do, I like that, that kind of, uh, comparison or I guess, I guess, uh, contrast that you're, you're outlining yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and just, I don't know the fact that you would have this newfound genius and what does he do with it? He applies it to, I mean, it's kind of, I guess it's because he was already interested in gardening and in fixing cars and stuff, but like you say, he applies it locally and ecologically and gets, he could have easily gone down another uh, road and been like, I'm going to write the finest sonnets that anyone's ever read or whatever. Right. Right. Uh, and, and at first that's it. His impulse is he has to get access to, uh, a university, yeah, to Berkeley, some sort of right? person plugged into the grid, you know? Uh, and then he realizes that that, you know, that is not how you, that is not the point of his insights or his abilities. The point is to uh, improve his own life and, and his own community's life, uh, which will, which can impact, uh, you know, the larger culture, but uh, that's not the point. One of, one of my favorite parts that I had not noticed before is that I think it's the, really the first problem George solves after he, you know, sees the light or whatever, <laughs> uh, other, other than beating the doctor at chess that night, the next day, the town guy comes in and says he can't pay for his car, but he really needs his car. And George has this really complicated solution of, you know, this other guy needs this done and this other guy needs this done. So he does this and I'll do this and blah, 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 blah. Basically he figures out a way that this guy giving him $1,200 right now is not necessary. And I was just like, Oh, he just solved capitalism in, you know, five <laughs> seconds. Uh, but it, I, I thought that was a really interesting choice to have like the first thing he, he, his genius teaches him is that, uh, there is a way to eliminate the need for money, uh, yeah. in, in, in this uh, community. 
Yeah. Actually, the first thing that he learns is that he trapped the rabbit in his fence. Is that the first thing? Yeah, because remember he like calls Forrest Whitaker in the yeah, middle of the night. He, he's like, he's oh, like, oh yeah, that's the I, very I fenced night. Him in. That, that's um, right. But yeah, but right. the, it is funny that he goes from that to like, oh, capitalism doesn't need to exist. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty great. <laughs> Instead, we can just live. It, it's sort of like it's like a philosopher king shit, basically that he's doing. Of like he's this benevolent genius and he's gonna give everybody everything they need and um it's funny that like the one time when he become he like loses his cool is in the bar when he breaks the mirror with his mind. But before he does that, he's like yelling at the people, but he's what he's yelling at them uh are really good suggestions for how they can be more efficient. Yeah. He's like, You can fit three more cars in your parking lot if you arrange it like this, and if you take this route, it'll make your day shorter and everybody get their mail by 3 PM. And, and then he apologizes at the end. And I was like, fuck apologizing. You just like made everybody way better at what they do. Yeah. I, I've always remembered the line or the phrase he says, he says, look at here. I've got a holy shit idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's a great, it's a me great every scene. time I think uh, every time I like have an idea that I'm like, ah, oh, I should write about that. And then that lasts for about 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he slams it down on the table and it's like, I can't remember what it is, but it's like some energy efficiency. It's, it's thing. the I'm, most efficient way to store solar energy. Right. It's uh, something to revolutionize the world. And, you know, he slams it on the you can bar for yeah. the bartender here, you know, take it. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's a pleasing. It's a pleasing sort of problem, uh, but. But it's not, I think there's a lot in common with the movie Goodwill Hunting in that George is kind of just this everyman who's kind of cursed with this. He thinks he's cursed with this genius. And Will Hunting is kind of this ostensibly everyman. It's just he has this secret that he's a genius. Uh, but but it Goodwill Hunting doesn't go to such great lengths to, I mean, you see uh will hunting as very opposed to having his genius appropriated you know there's that big long speech he gives about uh you know working for the nsa uh, but the movie's less about that it's more about you know sort of psychological you know emotional healing learning to apply himself and 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 to accept love and all these things, but which is good, but, uh, <laughs> fine, fine pursuits. Yeah. But phenomenon's much more, uh, much more relevant to what, you know, the kind of stuff we talk about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, I keep saying this, like George is just this nice dude, this benevolent genius who everything he comes up with, he basically does it in order to share it with others. And, you know, he makes this super fertilizer and he's like, here, use this to grow corn on that soil you have that, it, that, you know, isn't worth a damn. Or he, you know, sells his vegetables. And the sign he had was like George's tomatoes, 50 cents. And the, these tomatoes are like the size of a softball. Um, that, that's one thing I had a problem with. I'm not sure uh, size in gardening is the measure of quality. No, um, but, you know, it's it's kind of the movie stand in for like look at how good he is at this. Right. It, it, it seems like it would have been better to have people telling him how much better they tasted as opposed to like, Oh, you've got an obscenely large, uh, zucchini, uh, because you can grow zucchini that big, but that just means like you left it on the vine way too long and it's going to be, it's going to taste gross. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and he's got all of his, you know, experiments in his house and that, and that sort of shit. The guy, the stuff that the Berkeley dude's not interested in. Um, you know, and he even his impulse when people are afraid of him is like, well, I'll just set up a table and they can come and they can talk to me and they'll see that I'm, you know, I'm just like them. It's just, I have this, this other ability. Um, and they're asking him like wild shit. And he's like, I only know what I've read in these books, but you can ask me anything about anything in any of these books. It's basically me when someone asks me a question about what I do. I'm like, I've read these books. You can ask me about them. <laughs> um, other than that, leave and me the alone. First, the first one they ask him about is Lady Shatterly's 
lover, which he calls Lady Chatterley's lover. And what does he say? That's a book for figuring out the key to, to a, a woman's to a heart. heart. I read it twice. <laughs> Another little nice little joke they had. Yeah. Um, you know, did I, you, did that's you a nice notice, inclusion. Uh, <laughs> did you notice that he... In one scene when he's up late at night reading, one of the books on his lap is the Kama Sutra. <laughs> no, but that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is he going to fuck the tomatoes? <laughs> All um, the stuff he always wanted to, to learn about. That was the first book he read. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. read that there, Kama Sutra. Uh, he read mine. <laughs> how great, yep. dude. How great would it be if in the bar he's like, I got a holy shit idea. And he slaps it down and it's like a drawing of some like weird sex <laughs> position. A new, a new sex position. It's him like sucking his own dick and he's like, here, you can have it. Take it. <laughs> a scientist should have this. You know? <laughs> it's too much power for one man. And then cut to the. <laughs> Go to the doctor like, we need to study your brain. We, the world needs this. <laughs> you don't understand, George. You could be our teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the real phenomenon. The self-suck. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I didn't notice he was reading that. Yeah. That would be how funny uh, he's sitting at the table and all the books are like the joy of sex, Kama Sutra and like D.H. Lawrence and all this like 50 shades of gray. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ask me anything from any of these books. <laughs> oh, we've, we found a way to make this PG movie a dick joke. You know, I think the first book he should have started with was the Bible. If you ask me, I mean, I don't, what, what other book does book he need? Worth- reading if he's such a genius why don't he read that tell us what it means here's here's something that bothered me uh he kept saying he wasn't sure if what he saw was a ufo and i I kept thinking if you're not sure whether or not it's a ufo (laughs) it's unidentified (laughs) (laughs) if you can't identify it then that's it is a ufo yeah, and it, it's just so funny. It's funny, but like a hundred percent, what would happen in real in real life, where all people want to talk about is whether or not he saw a UFO. The end. And that one dude, the dude at the table, is like super antagonistic, where he's like, "I don't know," and he's like, "But you do know. You do know." Yeah, I I think I saw that the guy who plays the kind of antagonist at the at the fair who is asking her about aliens. I think that is the writer's son. I think his name is Justin De DePego or DePego. Uh and the writer is Gerald DePego. Uh who who also we talked about last week wrote Instinct, but I could not find that movie. It's not on Amazon. It's not streaming anywhere. Mm. Uh it's not on YouTube except it, in Spanish. Like <laughs> dubbed in Spanish. So with no subtitles. So uh I couldn't couldn't do it. But it's the same. It's John Turtletaub and Gerald DePego a couple years later. So I was very interested and couldn't couldn't find it. Mm, that's weird. I mean it's not it's not exactly like a classic of world cinema. No. Uh, but I'm I, I liked Phenomenon enough to where I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find that movie. Mm. Well, okay, cool. I, I I like vaguely remember that movie, but I I don't really remember details. I just remember Anthony Hopkins acting like an ape. Yeah, that's it. But then I also like for some reason in my head it's in the same box as a uh, Wolf, that Jack Nicholson movie. Mm. I don't. I guess it's just like dudes acting like animals. Makes me think. <laughs> I saw, uh, you said ape, it made me think I was looking at those Wayne White uh, paintings, you know, goddamn fucked up piece of shit. And uh, there's one, you know, it's like a shitty hotel landscape painting. And uh, it's in red, white, and blue, uh, stars and stripes, and it just says ape shit. <laughs> if you, I think we've talked about it before, but if you don't know Wayne White art, you should go check it out. It's it's yeah. excellent. Yeah, Murfreesboro native, or did he just go to MTSU? Uh, I, I know he went to MTSU, 
and I know he does, uh, I, he's got a, a documentary about him called Beauty is Embarrassing, which is really interesting. And I know he went to MTSU and he does stuff with, uh, what's that private school out here? Um, Web, Web school. Um, oh, so yeah. he, he's connected to middle Tennessee, but like he, you know, worked on the Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee's Playhouse in the, in the nineties. And that's sort of how he got started. Uh, but yeah, interesting guy, very interesting art and really just fucking hilarious art in some ways, but also not, not unthoughtful, you know, um, some of, some of that stuff is so bad. It's good. Like ape shit. Or there's one that just says like, fuck that shit. Uh, oh, he's from Chattanooga. He says, Ah, ah. Um, so that that makes sense. What is the name of the? I keep the the web school. I keep wanting to call it Gardner Web, but that's a university. Montgomery it's just Web. The web. The web. Uh, there's a Montgomery Bell. Oh, that's Academy what I was, yeah, in okay, Nashville. That's, it's just called the Web School. I, Tennessee's got a lot of weird little private schools like that. Yeah, the South in general just has a lot of those like tucked away in places. Yeah. Um. The, yeah. the the South really tucks away its privates. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I was thinking of like the setting for the film feels very very Midwestern, but it's Northern California. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did I see it was filmed in a town called Auburn? Oh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't I, look at the production stuff. I thought I happened to catch that. I could be way wrong, but I thought I saw that in the. In the credits, uh, maybe I, I wasn't. I didn't really pay attention. It wasn't Auburn, Alabama. I'll tell you that. No, no um, they they just be like drenched in sweat and like smacking at mosquitoes. Uh, it's getting, yeah, it's I getting was hot like again jealous, here. jealous of the weather in this movie. It's oh, like it's beautiful. always warm enough to where they're outside and you know doing stuff in the garden, but cold enough to where they're like wearing jackets. Um, yeah, and it's Northern just, California, so it, it's fairly green and everything's not on fire. At, at one point, Jensen and I were watching this and she sort of asked, she's like, wait, is this, when does this movie take place? Because it's kind of hard to tell because they drive old trucks and Nate is like fucking around on the radio that seems, you know, it seems kind of old. They're doing Morse code and uh, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, until he gets in trouble, you know, he goes, go, goes to the city in their car. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that it's, that is a little interesting. It's sort of like little town tucked away out of time sort of feeling to it. And that's what, uh, Kira Cedric says. She's like, when she says she wants her life to be uncomplicated and she says, that's why we came here. Yeah, to, it, it's it's funny because uh, wasn't that the town in Outbreak? Wasn't that like a Northern California town, or was that in Washington or something? I don't remember. That movie sucks anyway. But I have repressed that. <laughs> yeah, this movie has nighttime, which is a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very kind of idyllic setting that's perfect for for the kind of tone they're going for. Yeah. Um, I was just seeing like, cause I had uh, Wayne White's Wikipedia page up. Uh, he did the video for tonight, tonight by the smashing pumpkins. Nice. Which is very cool. I, di- I didn't know that. So if you've seen that, that video, then you have an idea of his sort of vision. It's aesthetic. Aesthetic. Um, yeah, so you know, phenomenon. I I recommend it. Yeah, it's probably take a, like take a trip down memory lane of the movies we've watched from the nineties. It might be the best. Uh, when when Jensen and I were thinking of alternative actors to play George Malley, my first suggestion was Polly Shore. <laughs> Can you imagine Polly Shore? Uh, but you know who I could imagine is Woody Harrelson. Wouldn't that be interesting? Woody Harrelson? How about Adam Sandler? Adam Sandler, I th- I'm convinced he can play any role. It's just like whether or not he decides to try. 
Right. It's like, could he have played it in 1996 when, you know, straight off of Happy Gilmore? I don't know. It's a ridiculous question. We're, it's two, 2020 and there's a global pandemic. And we're talking about whether or not Adam Sandler could have pulled off the role of George Malley in Phenomena. Yeah. I mean, is that any more absurd than reality though? <laughs> like that's, it's like, a. Oh, I've been well. watching some, I've been watching, uh, like everybody else, I've been watching Tiger King. Yeah. I've heard about it. Everyone's recommending it. I think like we're going to have to do it for the podcast. Yeah. Uh, just because for one it's incredible like you can't no one could write this like it's that bizarre it's like if you wrote this it's kind of like gauche's idea like if you wrote this as like a novel no one would buy it (laughs) because it's so Mm -hmm. fucking out there um but it's got a lot of interesting stuff about sort of obviously relationship between like humans and animals but also like nature like disappearing nature and how like these people think that they're the best chance for these animals to survive but they're all like grifting in their own unique way and they're all sort of like trying to create these edenic you know reserves for these animals to live on and for people to come and pay to visit it, it's it's got a lot of stuff going on that's kind of i don't know well, worth shit. talking let's, about let's, let's do it yeah we'll do it we already have a plan for next week and this will give us time to me time to finish it and you time to watch it because i is it I, is it a series or it's, is it just yeah, a, a documentary it's, it's episodic let me see i don't know how many episodes it is i've seen the first it doesn't two. matter i've got time <laughs> it's seven episodes so okay yeah. and they're, they're like you know i don't know if they're an hour or whatever but it's it's something let's do it next not next week but the next week yeah. So next week we'll go ahead and talk about that, I guess, because I feel like we're kind of running out of steam for phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, but next week we're going to do something we had talked about. We've talked about a few times. And we kept sort of forgetting about it, uh, but we're going to watch Babel from 2006, 10 years older than phenomenon uh, by uh, in your um, So it's a movie that I've only seen once. And that was actually not that long ago because uh, uh, my wife likes it. my wife likes it a lot and, and uh recommended that i that we watch it so we did but um, i'm all up for re-watching it and we'll talk about all the sort of kind of transnational failure of communication um themes going on yeah uh there, there's certainly a a depiction of globalism in a in a problematic sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I've seen it three or four times and I really like it. And I am looking forward to, to a rewatch. Yeah. It's one of those movies that was really well received and it seems like no one ever brings it up anymore. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. It was, it was competing against maybe the departed for best picture. I think it lost to the departed for best picture. Well, I mean, if it uh, came out in Oh six, then it would have lost to, there will be blood. Is that is my timeline? That was, there? I think 2007 was No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, and No Country for Old Men won. And but I think the year before it was Babel versus The Departed, essentially. Mm, okay, let me. Unless uh, unless I've got that wrong. I mean, I'll just bring it up and look at it. So we're thinking, let's go 2000s. It doesn't matter, but just for my own. Uh, yeah, it lost to The Departed. Okay. Oh no, yeah, there will be blood. Right? Day. I knew there will be blood. Didn't win. I'm stupid. Yeah. So, yeah, 2006, it lost to The Departed, which was that was sort of like a lifetime achievement award, anyway. Um, yeah. Even though so. he's made, Scorsese's won like or uh, made like five, six more movies since then. It seems like good, de- yeah. decent ones too. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. And did you ever see Silence? Yeah, it's super long, but yeah, it's super long. I fell asleep in the middle of it, but I liked it. I liked it way more than I expected to. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, a passion project, weirdly enough. Uh, yeah, but that it was up against that letters from Iwo Jima, Little Miss Sunshine, um, and which was like probably the best comedy that's ever been nominated, and then uh, The Queen. Yeah. Yeah, so Babel next week. I'm looking forward to it. I love yeah, Inyaritu is in my top five directors for sure. 
there there are people on Twitter who talk about how uh, Birdman is not a good movie, and I think those people are idiots. <laughs> I think that movie's excellent. Yeah, I do too. They focus too much, and this happens with a lot of films that have stuff like this. But they think, oh, it's just a gimmick because it's a long one, long shot. That's not even like the most important part of the movie. That's just like a nice bonus. Yeah, yeah. There's a people did the same thing with Boyhood, where it's like because there's a gimmick, they think it's a gimmick of a film. Uh, but I think there's quite a bit more to that movie too. Um, anyway. Gimmicks are okay. Yeah. As long as it's not the whole film, then yeah. Yeah. Like 1917, I think that ended up hurting it because I haven't seen the movie, so I probably shouldn't judge, but it seems pretty one note, but I don't know. Fuck Sam Mendes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's next week. We're going to be watching uh, Babel. Uh, so yeah, 50th episode, we've made it halfway to a hundred. That's exciting. It is exciting. Um, maybe I think we were thinking about doing some sort of awards or or recap or something. Let's just do it on a random episode. Let's do like episode 53. (laughs) Like fuck, fuck, uh, round numbers. Yeah, we'll have to figure out like what that looks like because we already did kind of rankings. So it'll be some form of, I guess it'll just be like based off the Oscars, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll think of like nominees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So I guess that's it. Like keep washing your hands, people. I've like, I said that at the top of the show, but it's true. My hands have never been cleaner. Like I, I wash my hands like a normal person anyway, but now I'm like getting it, it kind of like when I wash my hands, I imagine ER they used to watch back when I was a kid and they're like scrubbing in for surgery. That's basically with like what I'm doing. <laughs> um, even when like, Hey, you know, if I go outside, even if it's just like just into the yard, I come back in and wash my hands, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so little, little paranoid, but I don't think that's going to hurt me. So air on the side of caution. Yeah, sure. Stay safe. Eat a lot of beans. Watch your cock and balls out there. Cock and balls, as always. 